We are joined by a very special guest, whom some of you know and all of you know of. I cannot quite remember when I first became aware of Conrad Black, since 2003, I think, Lord Black at Cross Harbor, but it was sometime during the period that he presided over the best media chain in the Western world, which of course means the best media chain to core. Anyone who has followed the fortunes of the London Telegraph or the Spectator since his departure knows how Marius must have felt as he padded around the ruins of Carthage, how swift, how total their decline has been. But in their heyday, which means during the reign of Lord Black, these papers and the others over which he presided presented the world with an extraordinary spectacle major media outlets that were actually on the side of Western civilization. I know that for us in New York it's hard to believe, but it was true. They were pro-American, pro-growth, and they were defenders of individual liberty at a moment when the leviathan of status bureaucracy was everywhere on the rise. These were papers that treated the virus of political correctness with the contempt and ridicule which it deserved. They were smart, brash, amusing, and above all, intelligent. It says a lot that, just as the New Criterion was the first American magazine to publish Mark Stein regularly, so it was Conrad Black's papers that first introduced him to an insufficiently grateful British public. I believe it was before I met Conrad that I saw he had contributed a letter to the editor at The Spectator. This was odd, the proprietor of the paper writing in. Well, it turns out that a, a well-known contributor, whom I shall leave nameless, had written an obnoxious little article the week before. And Conrad, instead of sacking the fellow or complaining to his immediate boss, took to the pages of the paper to, well, essentially destroy him. Now, he did this with great panache uh, and with a, with a d nimble display of argument that we should be grateful to command. But Conrad Black has earned the world's admiration not only as a savvy and pro-Western proprietor of newspapers and magazines. He has also, and increasingly, earned our thanks as an historian and an insightful commentator about world affairs. As readers of The New Criterion, you will recall his several splendid essays that he's written for us. We have uh, his latest, his latest uh, contribution, an hilarious review of Tony Blair's recent exercise in self-infatuation. Uh, Callie has a pile of them there at the back that you can pick up on your way out if you haven't already read it. And he's also uh, written regularly for the National Review, for Canada's National Post, a paper that he founded some while ago, and many other outlets. In the last decade in his spare time, he has published important biographies of FDR and of Richard Nixon, 1,300 and 1,500 pages respectively. In a few months, he will publish a new book dealing in part with his interesting living arrangements over the past couple of years, and I very much look forward to reading that book. Well, I'm honored and delighted that Conrad Black has agreed to join us tonight. I'm told that the proverbial Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times, is apocryphal. But whatever its nationality, it is a hearty and a potent curse. 
as we who are living through very interesting times know well. We are fortunate indeed to have men such as Conrad Black, men of large understanding and subtle wisdom to help us understand and negotiate the perils we face. Conrad, welcome. Thank you, Roger. If, um, if any friends of the new criterion identify me with refreshing estivation, I am rich indeed. Um, we were talking earlier about uh, how the language was used by certain famous Americans of the past, including Casey Stengel, who when his team, which more often happened when he was manager of the Mets than of the Yankees, uh, didn't play well, he would say, the attendance has been trimmed, referring to the paying fans as the attendance. So I'm flattered to be in front of such a distinguished attendance, and I'll try not to trim you. Um, uh, what I thought I would say is uh, on, on the following theme, as Roger says, I, I have actually written a book about my travails of the last few years, uh, but going back a little before that, to connecting to a book I rather presumptuously wrote about myself 20 years ago, so I bring it up to date, but a very large part of it has to do with the uh, uh, intimate contact that I've had with the U.S. justice system in the last eight years. But uh, the, the, that episode has been so prolonged that I am now almost through a draft of another book, which is a strategic history of the United States. And what I thought I would do, and Roger authorized me to do it, is um, just make some comments about the strategic development of the country, trying to mention events that would be familiar to all of you in ways that are perhaps slightly unusual. Um, and, and, then, um, and then connect that to the condition of this country right now in a way that will make no pretense to being profound, but I hope will at least offer a perspective that's a little different. Um, of course, the history of the rise of the United States in two long lifetimes from a grouping of colonies, uh, just a few million people, to a level of influence that no country has remotely approached in the history of the nation state is well known, and there's, there would be no point to write just about that because it has been so well documented. But I do feel, and almost all of you, or maybe all of you are Americans, so you I hope we'll take this in the right spirit, but I do feel that you have somewhat underestimated certain astonishing achievements in your history. And I start with Benjamin Franklin. He did play a role, albeit a secondary role, in his very uh, unusual status as agent of Pennsylvania uh, in London, coming up to and during the what are known in this country as the French and Indian Wars, the Seven Years' War, in persuading the British to, uh, to demand the permanent removal of the French from Canada rather than, as was supposedly an alternative, leaving them in Canada, even though they had effectively been thrown out of there, apart from the civil population, and taking instead the, uh, the French islands in the Caribbean, which had a high and valuable production of sugar and rum and, in uh, some cases, tobacco. Um, the, the decision to remove the French from Canada, of course, had an immense 
impact on liberating the American colonists from what had been a, a rod on their backs by the constant threatening presence of a great power exercising its influence through some colonies in, in what is now Quebec. Having achieved this, as we all know, it was only a short while um, from 1763 to 1774 when the tremendous solidarity that had developed between the British and the, and the Americans, all of them being British at the time, degenerated into the American Revolution. Um, and I put it to you that Franklin's achievement in persuading the French to join the American revolutionaries in war and to take up the cause of republicanism and imperial secessionism at immense cost to France, which was strained financially anyway at that time, was one of the greatest diplomatic achievements in the history of the world. And when you look at it in the abstract, effectively, the Americans partly serendipitously benefited from, but partly also helped to organize the British-led expulsion of the French from North America, and then recruited the French altogether to assist them in expelling the British from America. And it was an utterly amazing achievement that this small group of colonies could so skillfully, consummately skillfully, manipulate the two greatest powers in the world. And they were not countries at that time ruled by idiots. I mean, they had an uneven level of government, but, but they weren't ruled by idiots. Uh, and for France especially to take up this cause, I mean, being from Quebec, I'm quite steeped in French history. Nothing remotely resembling a parliament had met in France uh, at the time it entered the Revolutionary War for 164 years, since it was dismissed by the young Richelieu with such finality that it did not meet again until the fall of the Bastille. Now, France was not a country that would be naturally sympathetic to the idea that was propagated, or the ideas propagated in the, in the Declaration of Independence and related texts of the American Revolution, and yet Franklin persuaded them to do it. Uh, again, the outcome is well known. I must not, however, leave the revolution without making a couple of points on another aspect of the genius of the founders. Um, we must, I think, and no American should be hesitant to do it because it in a way adds to the brilliance of the, uh, some of the founders of your country, but we must, I think, face the fact that the dispute between the British and the Americans at that time was essentially a tax dispute. And effectively, the British had in conducting the Seven Years' War victoriously and it was the First World War. They won in India, they won in West Africa, they won in the Caribbean, they won in North America. Their allies won in Europe, and they provided some expeditionary forces, as the British periodically do in Europe. And, and of course, they won everywhere on the high seas. And, um, but it doubled their national debt to what was then the prodigious figure of 133 million pounds. And the great genius 
who was the real founder of the American, I'm sorry, of the British Empire, Pitt the Elder, the Earl of Chatham, was then out of office and his successors were not as astute. And they pointed out that America had 30% of Britain's population. Contrary to widespread myth, that it was not just a collection of settlers huddled out by campfires with very small conurbations in Boston and Philadelphia and New York. And and they had a higher standard of living than the British did. And the British said, in effect, look, you know, we've run up a terrific debt for this, and we want you to help pay for it. Now, they did it in a stupid way. They're completely ill-advised. The leading statesmen of the time, Pitt the Elder, Fox, Burke, all warned the king and the king's friends, which is the name given to the group that governed at that time around Lord North, this is going to be a disaster if you do it this way, which it was. But let us face facts. The Americans got the British to pay to throw the French out, and when the, when the British invited the Americans to pay some of the bill, the Americans said, oh, no, we're not going to pay the bill. Well, look, it's something to be proud of. It's brilliant if you can do it, and, and you did do it. And it was, in fact, sold as a, a, a tremendous step forward for human liberty. And insofar as it was believed to be so, it was. But the individuals in this country had no more liberty at the end of the Revolutionary War than they had at the beginning, other than in the sense their government was resident in in the colonies rather than overseas. And they had no more liberty, really, than most British citizens in in, in the United Kingdom did. But that's not the point. It was sold by Jefferson in particular as, uh, uh, you know, the a light unto the nations. And that, too, was an act of genius. Now, the next serious strategic era in this country was that of keeping the Union together. As you all know, it was a very difficult thing between the South and the North, even at the Constitutional Convention, and the Three-Fifths Clause, where the Southern states, the slaveholding states, uh, which weren't all Southern, they included Maryland and Delaware, for example, um, received credit for purposes of calculating the the uh, number of congressmen they would receive and the number of electoral votes in presidential elections they would receive for three-fifths of the slave population, although, of course, none of them voted. So, in effect, a person in a slave state had a bigger vote than a person in a free state because he had the votes of some of these others who didn't vote. Well, you know, one does what one must, and politics is the art of the possible. But it did, as you all know, create terrible strains coming through the first half of the 19th century. And the genius of, in particular, two men who intensely disliked each other and never cooperated, uh, Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay, um, got the country, and I don't suppose for an instant that either of them particularly intended this to be what they were going to achieve, but they got the country to the point where by natural economic and demographic growth, the free states were, as all the world knows, by a very narrow margin, able to suppress eventually when it came an insurrection from the slave states. And this was by essentially Henry Clay's genius at Congressional Compromise and Missouri Compromise in 1820 before General Jackson entered public life and in the Compromise of 1850, which because of Clay's declining health had to be finished by Stephen A. Douglas, who was a very able leader in the Congress as well. 
after General Jackson was dead. And in between the chief agent of continuity was the the arrangement that General Jackson, President Jackson, imposed in 1829 by, amongst other exaltations of mind. And since we had a quite a peppy discussion about Joe Biden earlier, I think what I'm about to mention is not a bad idea, by threatening to hang his vice president. It was, it was John C. Calhoun, and when Thomas Hart Benton was asked by the governor of South Carolina if the president wasn't exaggerating, Senator Benton said, I've known General Jackson a long time, and when he speaks about hanging, it's time to look for rope. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, the proposition was that the slave society and slaveholding would be protected in the South and allowed to move westwards, uh, parallel to where it was in the South, not, not north into areas where it was economically, there was no reason for it anyway. Um, but secessionism would not be tolerated, and Jackson made it clear that if South Carolina persisted in its effort to acquire the power to nullify federal laws within its borders, he would regard it as treason and act accordingly. Uh, it, the combination of the flexibility of Clay and some of his uh, colleagues in the Senate, Daniel Webster and Stephen A. Douglas especially, and President Jackson's firmness kept the country together until 1861 and at that time, and I'm not suggesting that's what they intended, but their motive was just to keep it going, uh, hopefully forever. But in any case, they kept it going long enough that when the insurrection came, by a narrow margin, even though the North had 22.5 million people and the South only 8.5, and, and of those only 5 million were free, um, and therefore loyal altogether, reliable to the South in, in an insurrection, the North was, as, as everyone knows, just strong enough to, to suppress the insurrection, abolish slavery, and, um, and emerge a united country. And automatically, in 1865, next to the British Empire, and along with what in a few years would become the German Empire, at that point dominated by Prussia but not united, but led already by Bismarck, uh, with those two countries, the greatest power in the world. Again, there were no doubt many people alive in their 80s who had been alive when the country was founded and had seen it grow from its humble origins to this tremendous condition that it enjoyed after the Civil War. Uh, from then on into the 20th century, you didn't need a strategy. All you had to do was let America be America. But that meant the promotion of growth the promotion of individualism, the acceptance of practically unlimited numbers of assimilable people who pledged allegiance to the Constitution, undertook to learn the language, or at least have their children learn the language, do their best themselves, but assimilate to English within a generation, English language, I mean, and, um, and just pitch in and, and, and help build the country and as they did so, do the best for themselves. And it, it was, a, it was a, a, a simple proposal, and it absolutely astounded and inspired the world. And as you all know, the country grew from 33 million people at the end of the Civil War 
a war in which 700,000 Americans died, a terrible war with another half million injured. Um, to, uh, I mean, the thought of Canada, which is that population now, losing 700,000 people in a civil war, it's unimaginable. Moving from that population to over 90 million uh, before the First World War was, was an astonishing thing. And the economic growth, I mean, it's all very well to talk about the robber barons, but as Paul Johnson famously said, who exactly did they rob? The, 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 the country's prosperity and prosperity per capita grew vertiginously. The, um, as the population tripled, the economic product multiplied by approximately 10. And, and the, it's a little hard to apply contemporary statistics to, to those days. But in, in this country, it's not impossible. Most of the, you can put it together fairly well. And in the 1880s, the, uh, the economic growth rate of the United States adjusted for inflation, which there was very little of at that time, was 8% a year. I mean, this is unheard of, completely unheard of. It's all very nice for the Chinese to claim that they're doing better than that. And no one disputes that they're having a commendable um, experience of economic growth. But in the first place, you cannot believe one figure that emanates from China. Uh, and in the second place, it's rather different to pull a few hundred million people from a colossal population of, frankly, peasants, forward into modern industrial and commercial participation is something else again to triple the size of a country and, and at the same time triple its per capita income. It's an amazing achievement. And, and it's not really traceable to any individual. Of, of all the presidents between Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt, most of them were, of course, General Grant was a great man for other reasons, but most of them were, were perfectly respectable people, but they, they weren't very distinguished presidents. Didn't matter. The congressional leaders weren't very distinguished. That didn't matter. They, they just let America be America. Now, in the 20th century, by that time, by Roosevelt's time, it was clear it was a tremendous power in the world. And the balance in Europe was now so fine between the German-led alliance group and the British-French-led alliance group that there began to be considerably more solicitude about the opinions of the United States. And it, it came up in odd places like Samoa, and just odd places in the Pacific and Caribbean where their interests slightly uh, intersected. Um, and, and Roosevelt... Uh, Theodore Roosevelt mediated the end of the of the, of the uh, Russo-Japanese War in 1905 at Portsmouth, New Hampshire, of all places, and uh, and he was invited to help determine the future of Morocco when there was that dispute between the uh, Germans and the French. But essentially, T.R. just behaved like a traditional great power. He built the Panama Canal and painted the navy white and sent it around and made it clear that uh, the United States would not tolerate any intrusion in the Americas. And, but that point was pretty well known before then, including when Napoleon III's candidate for emperor of Mexico was shot uh, by a firing squad. But um, Woodrow Wilson, on the other hand, much disparaged as he is, was 
the first person to inspire the masses of the world with the vision of enduring peace. Now, it didn't work, but it was still a great vision. Uh, we, we needn't go through chronologically each of these eras, but at that point, the U.S. was just sort of dabbling in, in the world, going into it and coming back from it. Uh, but uh, all this changed, of course, in the Second World War. And I put it to you, and again, I do this, as will be clear, in nothing but the most unlimited terms of admiration, that the strategic management of this country, direction of this country, from the late 30s to the end of the Cold War, was absolutely inspired. Of course there were errors. Vietnam was mishandled, and there were some problems in the Carter era, but basically... It was, it was an absolutely masterly performance, uh, starting with a great strategic team assembled by Roosevelt, including uh, Truman, Marshall, Eisenhower, MacArthur, Cannon, Bolin, and others, Dean Acheson, and, and, and going great many other people through, uh, through people, many of whom would be known to you, uh, Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, and so forth. Well, the manner in which Roosevelt concluded that he, he knew German very well, and he'd gone to school in Germany, and when Hitler's speeches would be broadcast, he would translate them for his entourage as they listened to them because they'd be interrupted by these enthusiastic shouts from his followers, and the German broadcasters would only give the translation when Hitler had finished speaking. So Hitler would translate and say, do you realize what he's saying? And so on and so on. And he said, look, this man is mad and he is going to war. And when he, Roosevelt's habit when he wished to take a holiday was to requisition a cruiser or a battleship and announce that he was inspecting naval fortifications and go out and fish and play cards and drink with his friends on the ship. Even though it was a dry navy, he exempted himself, of course, in his party. And um, uh, while he was on such a cruise on the USS Philadelphia, he was advised that the German foreign minister von Ribbentrop was going to Moscow. So he sent Stalin a message saying, don't sign a deal with Hitler. If you do, he will overrun France and he'll turn on you, which of course is what happened. And in 1941, when he met with Churchill, and he had adopted the position of all aid short of war and had uh, passed the lend-lease measure, which uh, by this time his definition of neutrality was that he increased territorial waters from three miles to 1,800 miles and ordered the United States Navy to attack on detection any German vessel. And on the other side, he would give the British and the Canadians anything they asked. And he said it was like lending your neighbor a garden hose to help put out the fire. I'll give it back to you when he's finished. And he started with 26,000 warplanes. I don't think many of those warplanes were ever returned to the United States. But that was his definition of neutrality, and he sold it to the public. And when he met with Mr. Churchill at Newfoundland in the summer of 41, Churchill asked him to put an absolute embargo on, on the sale of oil to uh, Japan, which imported 85% of its oil. And Roosevelt said, no, I want to leave him something, because his idea was he wanted to finish this huge arms buildup he'd commenced and allow the Germans and Russians to innervate themselves a bit before there was any thought of the U.S. entering the war. But he recognized that Germany, as it then stood, having occupied most of Poland, France, and other neighboring countries, had 130 million people, same population as the United States. Only 60% of them can speak German, but if they were allowed to remain there for a whole generation, 
Germany would be as great a power as the U.S. and uh, under any Nazi regime would, of course, be an absolute force for evil in the world. So he was under no illusions about the need to get rid of Hitler. And he was concerned that Stalin and Hitler would make a separate peace, so he withheld any oil or aviation fuel from Japan. He knew perfectly well they were going to attack somewhere. They had to get the oil from what is now Indonesia. He didn't expect that it would come at Pearl Harbor, although they gave plenty of warnings to Pearl Harbor. And the damage that was done there was the fault of the local commanders. Please, whatever you do, do not believe this canard that Roosevelt schemed to have Pearl Harbor attack. But um, the manner in which the U.S. entered the war, the brilliance with which it was conducted under Marshall and the theater commanders, MacArthur, Eisenhower, and Nimitz, they're all people about whom much can be said, but they, they, were, they were brilliant theater commanders who completely successful. And then the way the country moved almost effortlessly into the policy of containment that reduced a deadly enemy of the West to absolute shambles and disintegration without one shot being fired in anger between the main powers. Of course, there were some smaller wars, but not general ones. That was, that was genius. It was absolutely genius. When diplomatic history is written, a hundred or 300 years from now, that will be recorded as one of the most astute uh, managements of a position of a great power in, in, in not only the history of the nation-state, but in the history of government. Both Leaders of both parties sharing it. The question I put to you, and on this I will subside, is what explains the fact that since the end of the Cold War, this country has compounded its addiction to the importation of foreign energy, run current account deficits that have moved steadily up to and remained around $800 billion a year for a long time, which is completely unsustainable. Anyone with a knowledge of grade three arithmetic can see that. Has outsourced approximately 50 million jobs, borrowed trillions of dollars from countries in order to buy from the same countries goods formerly made in this country, allowed up to 20 million unskilled, low-paid workers into the country, undocumented, and, and not put them to work making the things that used to be made here but are now made in China and elsewhere, and then, and then issued trillions of dollars of worthless real estate-backed securities certified by distinguished companies to be investment grade. How did this happen? Now, you know, obviously it's not an easy answer, but it is an astounding turn. And I will finish on this point. It is a terrible mess, and I have had a, I don't know if any of you read any of the stuff I write, but I've had a slight um, but very, very courteous debate with certain very knowledgeable economists. My theory is that these trillion-dollar plus annual deficits of the last several years are just straight additions to the money supply. Technically, they are not, but in fact, they are. I mean, I know that the Federal Reserve issues these notes through an electronic transfer that pays for it because basically people won't buy you. I mean, outsiders won't buy U.S. Treasuries anymore for obvious reasons. And those two interfaced obligations could be collapsed quite easily. But meanwhile, the money has been spent. It's out there. You know, the $800 billion stimulus program, I mean, it was insane, but the money was spent. Well, 
This is a 75% reduction in currency value in three years. Now, the reason it isn't quite so obvious is because the other main currency issuers of the euro and the yen are doing essentially the same thing. There is no discipline on these currencies, so they're, they're just devaluing together and showing no sign of having the will to pay down the debt as opposed to simply devaluing the currencies in which that debt is monetized. I mean, you can do it, but let us not deceive ourselves. This, this is the sort of formula that does savage violence to the, um, to the middle class, and that, that, is a, that is historically an invitation to extreme political disorder. Now, I don't think we're going to get that in this country. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with this country that some leadership won't deal with, and historically, when it's needed leadership, it has had it, and it does always respond. It's a patriotic country. It's not like a... You know, the French or the Italians who love their country, but when anyone tries to lead them anywhere, they either groan in skepticism or scream in irritation. But that's not how it works here. But but somebody is going to have to get serious about this. And there are signs of it, but it is it is a very comprehensive problem. And, and I think probably everybody in the room could agree on most of the things needed to be done, and they're not that complicated. But... I, I, am, I just have to express to you my astonishment that this happened because it is all of a sudden a country run for decades in an absolutely brilliant way. Whether we appreciated at the time how brilliant some of these presidents were is another matter, and they made their mistakes, all of them. But that country suddenly became, I, I hate to say this, but it became in public policy terms an almost completely stupid country, and I don't understand it. But it'll change. But it, you know, the sooner the better. Roger, I spoke much longer than you wanted me to. I'm sorry. <laughs>